0: By the mid-19th century, Cornelius Vanderbilt was arguably the richest man in the United States. For 40 years, he built an empire using steamboats and railroads. And in October 1867, showing no signs of slowing down, the 73-year-old set his sights on adding to that empire with the Erie Railroad.
1: Acquiring the Erie wasn't going to be easy. Standing in Vanderbilt's way were financial speculators Jay Gould, his partner Jim Fisk, and Vanderbilt's oldest business rival and friend, Daniel Drew. All three had a stake in the Erie and would need to be disposed of.
0: But Vanderbilt had a plan. He would make himself the controlling shareholder by using Gould and Fisk to purge Drew from the company at the annual board meeting. In return, He would throw gould and fisk some profits
1: but on the evening of october 6th two days before the purge was to take place vanderbilt received an unexpected guest at his manhattan house daniel drew
0: in tears drew threw himself at the mercy of vanderbilt he had learned of vanderbilt's plan and begged to be spared
1: Either out of sympathy for his old friend, or in a calculating ploy to keep Drew under his thumb, Vanderbilt relented.
0: Little did Vanderbilt realize, the sniveling Drew was about to betray him with Gould and Fisk.
1: In the process, he threatened to finally bring Vanderbilt's empire to its knees.
0: Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Richard.
1: And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify.
0: This season, we're exploring the lives of American robber barons of the Gilded Age. Unlike most traditional dictators, these tyrants wielded capitalist power to control the lives of the working class, generating personal wealth like never before.
1: Today, we're exploring the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt, the first great tycoon of the Gilded Age. Thanks to his empire of steamboats and railroads, Vanderbilt became one of the wealthiest men of his era. With that wealth came power, enough power to either drive America to financial ruin or save it, all according to his whim.
0: We'll have all that and more coming up Stay with us.
2: In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters,
0: May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac, or drop a crispy fry between the car seats, or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. ba
0: up, at participating McDonald's. Cornelius Vanderbilt is not considered America's first multi-millionaire businessman. That distinction belongs to fur-trader and real-estate mogul John Jacob Astor. But Vanderbilt was perhaps the first modern tycoon. Vanderbilt became a
1: self-made millionaire by chasing technological revolutions in transportation. At the same time, he laid much of the foundation for modern corporations, including the mega corporation.
0: Few men probably better exemplified the changes affecting America as it industrialized in the wake of the Civil War, and few were as attractive for the label of robber baron.
1: Undoubtedly, Vanderbilt owed some of his wild success to underhanded scheming. But as to whether he truly deserves the title of robber baron, the answer may not be as clear as it seems.
0: Cornelius Vanderbilt was born on May 27th 1794 in Staten Island, New York. His family home was located right against the Narrows, the tidal straits separating Staten Island and Brooklyn. And since his father was a ferryman, it appeared as if the young Vanderbilt was destined for a life at sea.
1: This was reinforced when, around age 11, Vanderbilt quit school and began working on his father's humble pirogue, a shallow, two-masted
0: boat. Vanderbilt wasn't the finest of students, at least not in the classroom. But he was highly competitive, as well as coarse, tough, and combative.
1: That's where he gained his advantage in the rough and tumble world of ferrymen and sailors.
0: Working alongside his father, the young Vanderbilt took to the water like a natural. It wasn't long before he was taking the boat across the narrows all by himself. Transporting people and hay.
1: This quick acceleration made him wonder about what was next. According to historian T.J. Stiles, as he sailed past fat merchantmen or sleek Navy frigates, as he talked with ship's officers along South Street, he began to dream of possibilities beyond those on Staten Island.
0: So when he was 16, Vanderbilt came to his parents with a proposal. He wanted to start his own ferry service.
1: They agreed, on the condition that they got to keep half of what he earned.
0: Later on, Vanderbilt would recall that none of his later successes were as satisfying as stepping onto his own boat and hoisting the sail. The salty breeze on his skin felt like success and promised a wide-open, unknown, but exciting future.
1: However, reality quickly set in. Vanderbilt likely charged a shilling or 12.5 cents to ferry passengers between Staten Island and Manhattan. At most, the boat carried 20 passengers, and half of his fares went to his parents. So the young man was not exactly making a fortune.
0: Still, it gave him enough of a taste that he started to refine his goals.
1: According to T.J. Styles. In those daily handfuls of silver shillings, he discovered his hunger for money, an ache that would mingle with his pride and longing for control to shape his life at every
0: turn. In order to satiate that hunger, Vanderbilt took the small profits he earned and used them to purchase shares in other boats. Meanwhile, he also started scheming for independence from his parents and their 50% share of his ferry. The
1: plan he came up with was marriage to his cousin, Sophia Johnson.
0: Per his agreement with his parents, they'd no longer be entitled to a share of his earnings once he was married.
1: Vanderbilt's mother didn't object to the cousin factor. She did object to losing out on her son's earnings and protested the
0: match. But it was no use. In December 1813, 19-year-old Vanderbilt married Sophia.
1: He made amends by naming their first child after his mother.
0: Vanderbilt's unshackling from his parents was soon followed by another, even more important release. The War of 1812 had strangled American shipping and limited Vanderbilt's opportunities. But when the war ended in 1815, New York experienced a shipping boom. Over the next few
1: years, New York City became the nation's leading distribution hub and financial capital.
0: Vanderbilt was ready to ride the wave. In
1: 1815, he bought a share in his brother-in-law's ship, using it to transport goods from New York to southern ports and back. Eventually, Vanderbilt purchased full ownership of the boat, and soon he had his own fleet.
0: Meanwhile, he also found ways to innovate. For example, when he sailed up the Raritan River in New Jersey, he hired horsemen to ride along and announce that he had fish for sale. In New York, he hired small boats to sail out and meet larger merchant ships, where they hawked his food and liquor to sailors.
1: But without question, the key to Vanderbilt's success was his ability to spot lucrative opportunities. One of the most important opportunities of his life presented itself on November 24, 1817, when a Georgia rice planter named Thomas Gibbons offered Vanderbilt a job.
0: Gibbons owned the ferryboat the Stoutinger and was in need of a captain. By now, Vanderbilt had built up a reputation as a capable and trustworthy man, so Gibbons asked him if he was interested. Vanderbilt quickly said yes.
1: His enthusiasm wasn't due to Gibbons, but to the boat itself. The Stoutinger was a steamboat.
0: A relatively new innovation, steamboats were poised to revolutionize transportation, and Vanderbilt wanted to capitalize on that.
1: Through Gibbons, Vanderbilt met the Stoutinger's builder, James Allaire. The two quickly became friends, and Allaire happily taught the young Vanderbilt everything he knew about steamboats.
0: But not everything about the new gig was positive. In accepting Gibbons' offer, Vanderbilt entered a long-running business war, a war which would eventually change the nation.
1: Around the time Vanderbilt joined Gibbons, Gibbons was battling the Ogden family and its patriarch, former governor of New Jersey, Aaron Ogden. Throughout the 1810s, Ogden built a monopoly on the steamboat business in New York. In fact, he convinced the state of New York that only his steamships could operate in the area. Gibbons was determined to change that.
0: The war was by no means a gentlemanly one. The two men seized each other's ships and even stole wood fuel from one another. Gibbons even challenged Ogden to a duel although Ogden declined.
1: Concurrent to the war on the water was a war in the courts, where Gibbons and the Ogdens traded
0: lawsuits.
1: If Gibbons couldn't scuttle the Ogdens' ships, he hoped he could legally prohibit the monopoly.
0: Vanderbilt found himself smack dab in the middle of the conflict, which led to a couple of brushes with the law. Once, while trying to skirt local authorities, he was arrested for defying the Ogden monopoly.
1: Still, he was a feisty Staten Island boy, and he wasn't about to give up the world of steamboats because of a few cops. He knew that if he could get back out there and help Gibbons win this war, he'd be in a prime money-making position.
0: So after his release, he got back to work for Gibbons and continued dodging Monopoly process servers as best he could. This
1: partnership would last for nine years.
0: Vanderbilt grew to see Gibbons as a mentor, and Gibbons saw Vanderbilt as the perfect student. He was enthusiastic, hardworking, and willing to jump in on any opportunity where he could learn. He was especially curious about the ins and outs of running a large-scale, aggressive business.
1: Gibbons took advantage of this enthusiasm, asking Vanderbilt to work as his agent in New York, as well as his main captain. Vanderbilt threw himself into the job, which allowed him to rub elbows with successful lawyers and gain a better understanding of the world beyond the docks and the river.
0: Unfortunately, though, waging a war costs money. And although Gibbons' business didn't suffer, the many lawsuits the war garnered against both Gibbons and Vanderbilt were pulling them dangerously close to bankruptcy.
1: Luckily for Gibbons and Vanderbilt, though... One of their lawsuits against the Ogdens was about to reach the highest court in the land. The court's decision would change the United States forever.
0: Coming up, law and business collide.
3: The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers, global companies with unexpected motives, and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers, join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru, the doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs, and the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. In this ad for the
2: Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us radio to learn more
1: now back to the story.
0: Starting in 1817, 23-year-old Cornelius Vanderbilt began a partnership with wealthy Georgian planter Thomas Gibbons. Together, they waged war against the Ogden family's steamboat monopoly in the waters around New York City.
1: It had brought Vanderbilt to the verge of bankruptcy when in the nick of time, Vanderbilt and Gibbons' anti-monopoly lawsuit reached the Supreme Court.
0: Gibbons versus Ogden would decide whether or not the monopoly was legal. In the process, it would determine Cornelius Vanderbilt's future.
1: And of course, it would finally end the questions around a major national issue, whether or not the U.S. Congress had the power to regulate interstate navigation.
0: Gibbons' argument was that the New York State Legislature's exclusive licensing agreement with Ogden, a.k.a. the monopoly, violated Congress's authority.
1: Finally, on March 2, 1824, as the nation waited with bated breath, the Supreme Court announced its decision. Congress did have the power to regulate navigation, In effect, this ended the steamboat monopoly and handed a resounding victory to Gibbons and Vanderbilt.
0: More importantly, it unshackled capitalism and as historian H.W. Brands writes, liberated it from most attempts by the states to rein it in.
1: Gibbons and Vanderbilt were thrilled to best their rivals, but the glow of victory was short-lived In 1826, Thomas Gibbons succumbed to his poor health and passed away.
0: Vanderbilt had officially lost his mentor.
1: But he was not about to let all the lessons Gibbons taught him slip by the wayside.
0: The Supreme Court decision led to a frenzy of steamboat construction. Vanderbilt was at the forefront of the boom, constructing even larger, faster, and more opulent vessels. The fleet of boats plying the Hudson River inspired Vanderbilt's sobriquet, the Commodore.
1: For the next few years, Vanderbilt seized the reins of the steamboat shipping industry in New York. His knack for cutting prices without ignoring quality forced many of his competitors out of business. Before long, he was one of the industry's
0: leading men. In fact, by the early 1830s, there was only one man who could seriously compete with Vanderbilt on the Hudson. His name was Daniel Drew. And even before tangling with Vanderbilt in New York, Drew had a reputation as a shady wheeler-dealer.
1: Originally, Drew worked as a cattle drover. Allegedly, just before bringing his cattle to market, Drew would prevent them from drinking. Then upon arrival, the parched animals would immediately drink heavily, thus raising their weight, just before they were sold by the pound.
0: The tale might be apocryphal, but after meeting Drew, people believed it was true.
1: As Vanderbilt watched this scheming competitor put his first steamboats on the river, he told him bluntly, You have no business in this trade. You don't understand it, and you can't succeed.
0: But Drew turned out to be a more formidable foe than Vanderbilt had anticipated. By 1832, the Commodore and Drew were at war, and unlike the last war Vanderbilt was a part of, this one consisted primarily of price cutting. Each man sought to underbid the other.
1: Passengers were probably thrilled to see the fare across the Hudson drop to a mere 12 and a half cents.
0: But for Vanderbilt and Drew, The competition was threatening to ruin both of them.
1: Ultimately, Vanderbilt proved the more steely opponent, or at least the one with deeper pockets. After taking on $10,000 of debt, Drew agreed to sell his vessel to Vanderbilt in order to pay it off.
0: Vanderbilt had won. He now unofficially owned the waterways around New York.
1: Oddly, the bitter competition that got him there actually sparked up something of a friendship. According to journalist Michael Hiltzik, Vanderbilt saw in Drew, a man who had risen like himself, from modest circumstances and a crude upbringing, to command a fortune.
0: The relationship wasn't entirely warm. In fact, the best way to describe it is probably, they were frenemies.
1: Still, one frenemy wasn't about to stop Vanderbilt from continuing his meteoric rise.
0: By 1834, 40-year-old Vanderbilt owned a fleet of 20 ships and was worth about $500,000, about $16 million in 2021 dollars, all thanks to his vision for the future of transportation, which he knew was based in steamships.
1: Or, at least, had been.
0: He wasn't about to abandon steamships, but now he saw another player entering the game too, the railroad.
1: Vanderbilt's first encounter with locomotives was disastrous. On November 8, 1833, Vanderbilt took a trip on the Camden and Amboy Railroad to see if trains were a worthwhile investment. While on one of their trains, All of a sudden, the lead car broke an axle and derailed.
0: Vanderbilt suffered torn and bruised knees, some fractured ribs, and a punctured lung. Afterwards, he was bedridden for a month.
1: It would be completely understandable if Vanderbilt never wanted to go near a train again.
0: Yet, four years later, he was ready to invest in the new form of transport.
1: Even a near-death experience couldn't deter Vanderbilt from the profit potential he saw in railroads.
0: In fact, it wasn't just himself he was willing to put at risk for a profit. As the years went on, his business practices were growing more aggressive than ever when it came to steamships and rail.
1: For example, in 1853, Vanderbilt attempted to sell some of his California steamships to a group of investors. However, when the investors tried to break the terms in order to avoid paying Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt sought revenge. He created another company and slashed his prices so low that the rival investors were forced into bankruptcy.
0: And he didn't just get aggressive with his competitors. In both the steamship and railroad businesses, Vanderbilt made sure his costs were low, especially when it came to labor wages. For example, The firemen on his steamships, meaning those who tended the fire of a steam engine, were only paid 3% of what Vanderbilt spent on a team of horses.
1: When employees went on strike, Vanderbilt simply fired them or resorted to violence. In 1858, the low-paid firemen went on strike. Instead of negotiating with them, Vanderbilt called in the police to savagely beat the strikers into submission.
0: Though Vanderbilt faced labor disputes, he never dealt with the kind of mass labor actions that would plague other tycoons. This is at least in part because union organizing was still in its infancy while he was constructing his empire. There just weren't as many unions as there would be in the decades to come.
1: Regardless, though, like many robber barons, Vanderbilt exploited his workers in order to build his empire.
0: And build and build he did, especially when it came to the railroad business.
1: In the late 1850s, Vanderbilt was ready to take his role in the rails to the next level. So he set his sights on the New York and Harlem Railroad. Originally envisioned to run entirely on the island of Manhattan, it later expanded to Albany, opening the city to the rest of the state. Ironically, it was Daniel Drew who was among the first to sniff out the potential of the Harlem. He bought enough shares to get himself on the railroad's board of directors. Soon after, Vanderbilt followed suit, buying shares of his own.
0: Once the famed Vanderbilt bought in, the share price climbed. It continued to rise after Vanderbilt convinced the New York City Council to permit the railroad to extend south from Union Square to Wall Street. Almost certainly, the city council was persuaded not by their confidence in the project, but by Vanderbilt, who likely bribed them.
1: Daniel Drew, who saw railroads not as an investment, but as a means for speculation, decided to raise the stakes. Recognizing that more people would invest thanks to Vanderbilt, Drew decided to gamble that the price would drop. It was a longer bet, but one that stood to make more money.
0: This is called selling short. Basically, it means Drew sold shares that he didn't own yet on the expectation that falling prices would allow him to buy the shares at a profit before he was required to deliver them.
1: In order to orchestrate a drop in the stock price, Drew went to city council and convinced them to retract the approval they had just given Vanderbilt almost certainly through bribery. Drew was poised to make a killing and cut Vanderbilt off
0: at the knees. But Vanderbilt was fully aware of Drew's shenanigans and managed to outmaneuver him. He gobbled up the plummeting stock before Drew could buy enough to cover his short contracts.
1: Once again, the two men had crossed swords, and once again, Vanderbilt emerged triumphant.
0: With huge financial losses threatening his livelihood, Drew prostrated himself before Vanderbilt, who agreed to bail him out with a private settlement.
1: Drew had intended to do nothing more than plunder the Harlem. Vanderbilt, on the other hand, turned it into a thriving business. He invested in new track, engines, and cars. And in the end, even Vanderbilt's critics praised the newfound efficiency of his line. By the mid-1860s, Vanderbilt dominated New York State's railroads. After acquiring the Harlem, he bought the Hudson River Railroad and then the New York Central. But it wasn't enough. He still hungered for more.
0: The next prize he sought was the Erie Railroad, which would grant Vanderbilt access to Chicago. At stake was, in the words of contemporary historian Charles F. Adams, Jr., The traffic of a continent.
1: But actually acquiring the railroad would be no easy feat. According to H.W. Brands, the Erie was an elusive target, having earned a reputation as the Scarlet Woman of Wall Street for being bought and sold so promiscuously.
0: As such, Vanderbilt wasn't the only one interested in controlling the Erie. Also out for the railroad was infamous financial
1: speculator Jay Gould and his partner, Jim Fisk Jr.
0: Gould was the quiet, sinister strategist. Fisk, meanwhile, was the brash, flamboyant muscle. Together, they were a force to be reckoned with. But
1: they weren't alone. Teaming up with Gould and Fisk was none other than Daniel Drew, Vanderbilt's longtime frenemy. This epic matchup Vanderbilt versus Drew, Gould, and Fisk would soon be christened the Erie War.
0: At the opening of the war, Drew was one of the Erie's directors and its treasurer, and not a particularly constructive one at that. Drew's only real interest in the railroad was to manipulate its stock price for his speculation schemes. Actually running the business or maintaining tracks and trains was irrelevant as far as he was concerned.
1: Vanderbilt, on the other hand, saw the Erie as a long-term investment, one whose value he planned to grow. But first, he needed to do something about the parasitic Drew. So he bought up Erie stock to raise his influence in the company. Then he secretly arranged for Gould and Fisk, set to be elected to the board of directors, to kick Drew out.
0: Vanderbilt viewed Gould and Fisk as gullible rubes who would dance to his tune. He figured if he threw them a neat profit, they would do his bidding and oust Drew at the annual board meeting on October 8, 1867.
1: However, two days before the board meeting, Drew came groveling at Vanderbilt's door. He had gotten wind of what was planned and begged to be spared. According to Michael Hiltzik, Drew promised to behave himself ever after and to execute all his conniving solely in Vanderbilt's interest.
0: Vanderbilt caved. He then told Gould and Fisk that Drew would in fact remain on the Erie board. The pair did not protest.
1: With Drew, Gould, and Fisk all on the board as his puppets, Vanderbilt believed he was in a position to finally gain controlling stake of the Erie. In the process, he'd cement his position as the most important man in American railroads.
0: He had no idea he was about to be stabbed in the back.
1: Coming up, the eerie war pushes Vanderbilt to his limit.
0: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at...
3: (laughs) 3 a.m
0: the office was shocked (laughs) But
3: that's when we sleep
0: maya made it less scary with canva (laughs) i'll just record my presentation so singapore can watch it anytime record and present anytime with canva presentations at canva.com designed for work
1: Now back to the story.
0: In 1867, 73-year-old Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt believed he was on the verge of taking full control of the Erie Railroad. After outmaneuvering business rival Daniel Drew with the help of speculators Jay Gould and Jim Fisk, Vanderbilt believed full acquisition was only a matter of time. But then everything started to go wrong.
1: Initially, Vanderbilt intended to combine the Erie with his Harlem, Hudson, and New York Central rails. However, out of nowhere, the Erie board tabled the proposal.
0: More importantly, Vanderbilt's effort to buy every share of Erie stock on the market was thwarted by the odd fact that there simply was too much of it out there.
1: To no one's surprise, Daniel Drew was behind
0: the stock scheme. A year earlier, Drew had loaned the railroad $3.5 million, taking for security some 28,000 shares of unissued stock and $3 million in bonds that could be converted into another 30,000 shares. This allowed Drew to control the amount of shares available and thus deprive Vanderbilt of the chance to corner the market.
1: He was like a dragon sitting atop a hoard of gold.
0: After discovering Drew's duplicity, Vanderbilt summoned a New York State judge, who was conveniently in his pocket. In order to separate Drew from his hoard, Vanderbilt demanded the judge forbid the registration of any new Erie shares. Little did Vanderbilt realize, though, Drew wasn't working alone.
1: Not long after the October board meeting, Drew solidified his alliance with Jay Gould and Jim Fisk. The three shot back at Vanderbilt by having their judges order the railroad to register every share.
0: The company was soon awash with contradicting court orders, virtually smothered by an avalanche of pending motions and appeals. An eerie lawyer even admitted that it was impossible to keep track of what was going on.
1: According to Michael Hiltzik, Vanderbilt's fortune was now dependent on the market's continued confidence in his implacable determination. To falter even for a moment could bring his entire business edifice down in a fatal
0: crash. So Vanderbilt kept buying stock. And Drew, Gould and Fisk kept printing new shares. His resources stretched to their limit. Vanderbilt needed to deliver the decisive blow.
1: So, on March 11, 1868, his pet judge declared Drew, Gould, and Fisk to be in contempt of court and ordered their arrest.
0: The three fled to New Jersey and barricaded themselves in a hotel. Fisk put on an ostentatious military uniform and started calling himself Admiral and arranged for three cannons to be placed on a New Jersey pier, as if to face down any invasion by arresting officers.
1: Drew did not take well to the siege. He seemed to spend all day praying. Mm. Concerned that he would crack, bodyguards were stationed around Drew to ensure Vanderbilt couldn't reach him.
0: Undeterred, Vanderbilt sent over a man pretending to be a traveling salesman. He managed to infiltrate enemy lines, where he bribed a waiter to slip Drew a note, asking him to come and see the Commodore.
1: On an early March Sunday, Drew slinked away from the hotel and reached Vanderbilt's Manhattan home. Once again, Drew threw himself at the Commodore's feet, and once again, Vanderbilt forgave him.
0: For all of Drew's scheming, Vanderbilt just couldn't abandon his old rival.
1: For the next few days, Vanderbilt and Drew negotiated the terms of peace without informing Gould and Fisk. When Gould and Fisk realized something was amiss, they brazenly set out for the Commodore's home and demanded to be let in. Ultimately, the two parties settled on terms.
0: According to T.J. Stiles, the grand settlement was complex, and many of its details would elude contemporaries and historians alike.
1: Meanwhile, though Drew had cracked, it was ultimately Vanderbilt who was forced to admit defeat. He couldn't buy out Gould's virtually endless supply of shares and corner the market, so he had little choice but to retreat.
0: In essence, Vanderbilt sold back half of his 100,000 shares of the Erie for $4 million. But because the whole affair left a bitter taste in his mouth against the Erie, Vanderbilt sold his shares to Drew, and Drew sold them to Erie. The railroad also paid Vanderbilt another million dollars for an option on the other half of his shares.
1: Later that July, Drew resigned from the Erie Board, leaving Gould and Fisk in total control of the railroad.
0: According to T.J. Stiles, the Erie War proved to be the most serious defeat of Vanderbilt's railroad career. More serious than the hundreds of thousands that slipped from his fingers was the humiliation he had suffered at the hands of the upstarts Fisk and Gould.
1: At the end of the day though, Vanderbilt's pride was hit far harder than his pocketbook. He was out perhaps $1.5 million as part of the Erie War reparations, leaving his empire with barely a dent. And what an empire it was.
0: By January 1870, Vanderbilt's New York Central and Hudson River Railroad became one of the biggest corporations in American history. Not only did it cover all of New York State, but Vanderbilt had lines which extended all over the eastern side of the Mississippi River, including Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit, and Boston. It was perhaps the first mega corporation, foreshadowing the rise of the likes of Standard Oil, U.S. Steel, and Ford Motor Company.
3: 20
1: years earlier, the largest corporations in the country had a capitalization of $10 million at most. The Central's capitalization was $90 million. In August 1870, the Chicago Tribune called Vanderbilt probably the most powerful individual in America.
0: But the Tribune wasn't just inspired to give Vanderbilt that title because of his wealth, or even the size of his empire.
1: In 1869, when America faced a massive economic crisis as a result of Jay Gould and Jim Fisk's manipulation of the gold market, Vanderbilt proved that he had the power to manipulate the entirety of the American economy, too.
0: First, by helping to send America into its spiral.
1: As the economy faltered, Vanderbilt tried to quietly offload shares of his Lakeshore Railway. By dumping the shares on a weak market, he helped contribute to the massive national panic.
0: Which is when Vanderbilt realized the influence of his actions and decided to change course. Taking a loan from a British merchant bank, he bought back his Lakeshore shares at a reduced price and made a big show of purchasing shares in his own New York Central Railroad.
1: The plots worked. He successfully halted the drop of his stock price and others like New York Central and staved off an even worse economic disaster.
0: Vanderbilt had manipulated the nation's economy, mitigating a disaster he himself had helped produce. It wasn't a president or a congressman who helped stop the total collapse of the United States economy, but a businessman who simply showed his face and repurchased some stock. Few
1: stories better illustrate the growing power and influence of tycoons like Vanderbilt. It seemed clear that a change had occurred in American society and that for the foreseeable future, the tycoons were truly in charge.
0: Most were relieved that total disaster had been averted. The press soon credited Vanderbilt with heroically preventing the complete ruin of Wall Street. But as T.J. Stiles notes, Vanderbilt gambled with the economic health of the national economy, The only thing more remarkable than his recklessness was his success.
1: But that didn't mean the American economy was in the clear now.
0: As Vanderbilt continued to expand his empire, he never once lost sight of running his railroads like a real business.
1: Unfortunately, Vanderbilt's way of doing things was almost unique. Most railroad barons simply saw their lines as cash grabs and opportunities for stock manipulation. They ignored their superintendents' complaints about worn-down rails or unsafe locomotives. Instead of fixing the lines and trains they already owned, barons like Gould and Fisk simply constructed more. By
0: 1873, the railroad industry was bloated with over-speculation and consisted of too many lines and too few passengers. Most railroad companies were in massive debt and a financial bubble was ready to burst.
1: Financial disaster was once again imminent.
0: It came on September 18th, 1873, when financial guru Jay Cook announced that his bank was closing its doors. As a result, the stock market fell into a tailspin. The panic of
1: 1873 led to a six-year economic depression.
0: Of course, the financial downturn was likely caused by a great variety of factors, some human-made, some not. But considering that roughly 80% of Wall Street was made up of railroad companies, it was easy to place blame squarely on the railroads.
1: That's certainly what Vanderbilt did. He told the New York Herald, people undertake to do about four times as much business as they can legitimately undertake. There are many worthless railroads started in this country without any means to carry them through. Building railroads from nowhere to nowhere at public expense is not a legitimate undertaking.
0: As a railman himself, Vanderbilt too found himself in the middle of the panic. After the
1: collapse, the stock prices in all of Vanderbilt's companies, including Lakeshore, went down. He was looking to lose roughly 50 million dollars, over a billion dollars in 2021 money.
0: 79-year-old Cornelius Vanderbilt's entire empire suddenly teetered on the brink of bankruptcy. He knew he needed to do something to salvage it, and quickly.
1: About a week after the panic began, Vanderbilt posted himself up in the offices of the Union Trust Company the bank that overlooked his company's accounts in order to restore confidence. He then strolled assuredly through, projecting an image of strength.
0: The performance worked. Vanderbilt's presence alone was enough to inspire confidence. Although this time, he didn't exactly save America from financial disaster. His empire didn't collapse.
1: But... This would likely be Vanderbilt's last great display of power and influence. He was getting older. In his final years, Vanderbilt was concerned primarily with absorbing faltering railways and preparing for his empire's dispensation to his family. That day came on January 4, 1877, when 82-year-old Cornelius Vanderbilt died from a combination of several ailments.
0: America's first tycoon was gone.
1: The vast majority of his inheritance went to his eldest son, William Vanderbilt.
0: Even today, it remains difficult to determine just how large that inheritance was, let alone how to translate it into today's money. But a good guess is that it was between 85 and 115 million dollars certainly several billion today.
1: Like many robber barons, Cornelius Vanderbilt was a self-made man. Though he never intended to dominate transportation when he became a self-employed ferryman, Cornelius' budding ambition practically dictated his desire to conquer industry after industry.
0: His competitiveness and thirst for opportunity knocked swindlers and speculators out of his way. When that failed, His vengeance drove them into financial ruin.
1: The day after the Commodore's death, the directors of his railroad companies released a joint statement which read in part, beginning in a humble position with apparently little scope of action and small promise of opportunity, he rose by his genius his indomitable energy and his clear forecast to the control of vast enterprises involving millions of property and connected with the interests of millions of people.
0: In other words, for better or for worse, he was the American Dream.
1: Thanks for listening to Dictators. For more information on Cornelius Vanderbilt, amongst the many sources we used, we found The First Tycoon, The Epic Life of Cornelius Vanderbilt by T.J. Stiles, and Iron Empires, Robber Barons, Railroads, and the Making of Modern America by Michael Hiltzik to be particularly helpful to our research.
0: You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard, and Richard Rossner.